Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Culpable Case Reviews is released every Friday and brought to you absolutely free. But if you want early access to next week's episode and ad-free listening, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals interviewed and participating in the show and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV or Resonate Originals. All individuals described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matter such as violence, drug use, and other graphic descriptions, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So I was in, I believe, seventh grade when this all happened, and Danny was found in the field outside of our town. It's kind of been a he said, she said for 25 years. This is Drew Violet, the brother of Danny Violet, the victim in this story. Danny was just 17 years old when he was found dead in a cornfield just a few miles from his home in Willard, Ohio. He was a star wrestler at his high school and on his way to earning a spot in the state championship. But back at home, life had become quite a challenge, even combative at times. When Danny stormed out of his house on Saturday, October 24, 1998, his family never thought it would be the last time they'd see him alive. In the years since his death, countless theories have run through the rumor mill. For Drew, it's been hard to sort fact from fiction. I've not known who to trust over the years on what I should and shouldn't say to these people. I've been very disappointed to the point where I just stopped looking into it because it's like I'm not getting anywhere. So this is the first time that I've had any kind of resurgence of, okay, let's, let's get into this again. Let's try to unearth something. After more than two decades, Danny's case remains unsolved with virtually no leads. But Drew has never given up hope that the truth will be discovered. Through some digging of his own, he's learned more about the events surrounding Danny's death, and he's convinced that someone knows more than what they're sharing. He's ready to get to the bottom of this and get justice for his brother once and for all. It's frustrating in a lot of different ways, and I'm done with being, hey, this is a, we might figure it out. I am done with not knowing. This is a culpable case review of Danny Violet. I've had every intention to do some research and and uh, look into, you know, what kind of... A short time ago, kind of Drew received a message on Facebook from a stranger. Well, technically not a complete stranger. 
It was from the wife of one of his high school friends. She had messaged him to express her frustration that, after all this time, Danny's case hasn't been solved. She told Drew that she'd sent information about Danny to some podcast producers in hopes that they could help. And that's how I first heard about this. It's an interesting case, nearly 25 years old, yet very little is known about it. I couldn't find any articles about it, just one single newspaper clipping from 1998. But while there may be nothing to draw from the media, after sitting down with Drew, I could tell that he had plenty to share about the circumstances surrounding his brother's death. I've got, you know, this whole binder full of names and stuff I've come up with over the years. There's a lot of names and kind of background on how each of them are involved in the case or how they knew Danny or whatever. Right out of the gate, Drew was eager to tell me everything he's learned about his brother's case over the years. But I encouraged him to hold those thoughts so we could start at the beginning and discuss Danny's life growing up and their family dynamic. Danny was the oldest of four kids. Drew tells me that their lives growing up were very much dictated by their father and his career. My father was in the military, so all of us kids were born in different places. Danny was born in San Diego, California um, in 81, I believe. And he and my, my mother and my father moved to Japan when Danny was three. And then I was born a couple years later in 85. And then my dad got stationed in San Pedro, California. So then my younger brother was born. And then uh, my sister... We're all basically four years apart. After years of picking up and moving, eventually the Violet family landed in Willard, Ohio, which is where this tragedy took place. Looking back, all the moving around was probably hard on Danny, Drew, and their two younger siblings, Ross and Carolyn. But Drew doesn't remember seeing it that way as a child. They became accustomed to the reality of wherever their father's military service was needed, that's where they went. Much of their childhood was spent with their mother, who Drew tells me was very different from their father. My father was in the military. He was in the Navy since he was 18. So he would be gone for long periods of time when I was younger, at least. And as he got older, I think he did less and less of that. That's why he stepped back and got into the Navy Reserves. My mom was a very passive woman who would think of the biblical sense of the wife kind of listening to the husband and his way goes. I've heard a similar theme with other military families, so it doesn't really surprise me that their father ran a tight ship. With a handful of kids running around, I imagine things got a little rowdy at times, and order was needed. The family dynamics made for an interesting home life, to say the least. But if there's one thing that can be said about the family growing up, it's that Danny was always there for his siblings. I mean, he was a truly a fantastic person and brother, he was a really genuinely good guy that just looked out for his friends and looked out for me and my brother and sister. I think his best quality was his protective nature. Being a very small town, word gets around about little things that occur at school. And if I was picked on or if Ross was picked on or Carolyn was picked on, he would always confront each of the perpetrators of whatever, like no matter how big or small. Being four and a half, almost five years separate in age, you would think that an older brother would not have his younger, uncool brother come around. But he would bring me to his friend's house when I was part of the group, you know, just the younger brother who would hang out. So Danny and I were very close. People couldn't separate us from each other. 
As Drew reflects back on the memories of Danny, he casts a smile. They were always by each other's side. Drew looked up to Danny as an older brother and was influenced by him in many ways. This is especially true with their shared love for wrestling. Danny was crazy athletic, crazy strong. Um, That's one thing his friends would always talk about, how nobody could ever touch him physically. Uh, He was a really good wrestler himself. So he wrestled two years, and he had gotten really, really good. His all-time goal was to be the state champ. And we had kids on the team that were state placers, state qualifiers, and Danny would just, like, throw them around like ragdolls. After he passed, the wrestling coach named an award after him called the Danny Violet Most Improved Wrestler Award because he went from, like, never doing it to becoming basically the best kid on the team, like, within a year or two. And his goal, uh, he wrestled his freshman and sophomore year. Drew tells me that he was actually a pretty good wrestler himself, having learned a thing or two from Danny. But he admits he had nothing on his older brother. By all accounts, Danny was a very strong and rugged individual, a force to be reckoned with. None of his peers could compete with him physically. But according to Drew, that competitive spirit had another side within the four walls of their home. Danny was always a handful and had a certain edge to him. But the older and more confident he got, the more friction there was between he and his dad. And it only compounded over time. My dad had the very militaristic background of being authoritative. So he and Danny butted heads quite drastically Um, especially as Danny got older. So, you know, my mom said and did whatever she could to kind of simmer things down a little bit and talk to him, but didn't really get anywhere. So Danny ran away multiple times, and I'm sure he just went to a friend's house and stayed for a couple days. And back then, there's not like a cell phone you can call. So there's a lot of tension there, and I'm sure that that didn't help anything when it comes to Danny getting into into drugs and alcohol and being pissed and then going to his friend's house and saying, screw it, and just to be a rebel to my dad in some way, shape, or form. Who knows how how much that had to do with his death um, or leading down that road. I'm not exactly sure what to make of Drew's comment, but from what I'm gathering, it seemed that Danny's rebellion was a slippery slope from the time he was a young kid all the way up until his death. Despite the care and affection he maintained for his siblings, Danny had many internal struggles he was dealing with, and oftentimes, they manifested within the home. He was one of those kids who just got into a lot of trouble. As he got older, he would experiment with drugs and alcohol. He'd have parties at the house. My parents were gone. I was around for a lot of it. Cops would be over our house here and there. It wasn't like a lot. It wasn't like he was an awful kid, but he was definitely troubled in the sense of didn't really give a shit about much you know he didn't wasn't the best student he cared about wrestling he cared about girls and he cared about his friends and partying one thing that really affected me for a very long time was I was in probably sixth or seventh grade Danny sat me down and said he goes it looks like I'm the cool guy like I'm the really cool popular kid he goes but I'm not these drugs and alcohol and everything that I'm doing He goes, I can't help it. And he said, "Um, don't do any of this, like ever. So I went until I was 35 before I had a single sip of alcohol, based specifically on that conversation that he had with me. So he'd always look out for me. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? 
How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all of that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Danny's words always resonated with Drew. How could they not? Danny clearly cared about his brother. It was hard for Drew to watch as Danny's life became more rocky and tumultuous. A strict upbringing certainly didn't aid Danny's rebellious attitude. But Drew wonders what other factors may have played a role in Danny's downward spiral. Willard was a very drug-heavy town. When I was in high school, it was number one heroin uh, use per capita in the country. If you wanted to get drugs, you just go to the east side, which is one of the last places Danny was seen. There's different tiers of drug users and whatnot, but I feel like Danny and his friends were the ones who were like, they weren't like awful people, but they just got into the wrong crowd. They deal with some heavy, high up. While Danny had a tight knit group of friends, their shared interest led them to cross paths with some less than upstanding people. And the older Danny got, the more he turned to drugs and alcohol as an escape from life's problems. But Drew tells me it was more than just teen angst that pushed Danny to act out. He was navigating real mental health issues, which only complicated things. Danny was bipolar. He was on uh, lithium. So not only was he a wild person in general, but he was also bipolar. So he'd have highs and lows. He'd have massive fights and then like really, you know, depressed at other times where he'd just be in his room and, and nobody could talk to him. He'd just be listening to music and sleeping for days. And then obviously my dad, being who he was, didn't know how to deal with that. And so I didn't help anything that he was bipolar. And I don't know how long, to be honest with you, he was on the medication of lithium, but he was 
for at least a couple of years. And he didn't like it. He didn't like the way it made him feel. From what I can recall, he would feel dull and didn't feel anything. He didn't have any good or bad emotions. He just kind of was like bland, and he hated that feeling. While Danny's parents tried their best to get him professional help, the medication he was prescribed only seemed to make matters worse. Sometimes he'd find solace in isolation, but often he'd find it while hanging out with his closest friends, Steve, Adam, and Judd. The four were very close, spending long days together, escaping life's difficulties. And that's exactly what the group was doing the night before Danny went missing. He was with Judd Dickerson, Stephen Ames, and Adam Castle the night prior. His circle was friends were really tight. You know, I'm sure they got into stupid stuff. But again, I don't think any of those, any of his close friends were bad guys and still aren't bad guys. They don't, you know, they just were experimenting on drugs. He would drink and he would smoke a lot of weed. And that was pretty much it. My only knowledge of him using any other drugs outside of those was from Steve, who told us about the LSD. According to Drew, Danny and his group of friends took the psychedelic drug known as LSD the night before he went missing. This information was recently shared with Drew by Danny's old friend Steve, who was there that night. While this story may have no bearing on Danny's eventual death, it did seem to play a part in his disappearance, which we'll get into in a moment. As was explained to Drew, on the night of October 23, 1998, the group of friends, Danny, Steve, Adam, and Judd, had gotten together at Judd's house, and the three of the friends took LSD. Judd was the only one who did not partake. Apparently, sometime in the night, Danny started experiencing a bad trip, and things kind of went downhill from there. Judd, the only sober one, fell asleep at some point, leaving Steve and Adam to watch over Danny. Steve eventually left around 5 a.m. to go home, and Danny decided he was also going to return to his home. So, according to the story, he went home to my parents' house. They were having breakfast. Danny and my dad got into it. They had a big fight. My mom tried to settle him down. They knew Danny had something wrong with him. They didn't know that he had taken drugs the night before. So they decided that they would call the police and have him come over to try to calm Danny down and whatever. So they went to the other room to discuss that or whatever, and then Danny went out the back door. So my parents never saw him again. My brother, Ross, who was only you know really young at the time, saw Danny go out the back door and went down the alley and down the block. So that must have been Saturday morning when he went missing. When Danny left his home on the morning of Saturday, October 24th, 1998, his family assumed he would eventually return. But as the hours turned to days with no word from him, they decided to file a missing persons report. While there's been rumors of people seeing Danny in the days after his disappearance, the only reported account, according to the Mansfield News Journal, was that Danny was seen later that day on the 24th near the local YMCA, which was on the east side of town, the bad part of town, as Drew puts it. And there was no specific time given for this sighting. Drew claims that another local reported seeing Danny later that night, around 7 p.m., walking by a Missler's IGA, a grocery store on the south side of Willard, and that he supposedly wasn't wearing any shoes. Either way, it seems that the last time anyone saw Danny alive was on Saturday, October 24th, 
the same day he went missing. The next sighting would come 11 days later, on Wednesday, November 4th, when his deceased body was found in a cornfield not far from his home. Drew was at the house when his parents were given the news that would turn their world upside down. I heard a knock on the door. I went up and I answered the door, um, and it was two police officers on the on the porch. I believe it was the Willard Police Department. I'm pretty sure it was Officer Rick Sexton, and I don't know the other gentleman's name. So they had asked me to get my mom and dad. My parents went onto the porch and shut the door, so I don't know what was said there. But basically they just told my, my mom and dad that they found Danny. Maybe a quarter mile outside of city limits is where they found his body in the cornfield. The guy who owned that cornfield was running his combine or whatever and saw him and then reported it. He had a pair of jeans on and no shirt and I believe no shoes. After receiving this devastating news, Danny's parents were left with the tall order of explaining it to the rest of their kids. While many of the details remain a blur for Drew, After receiving the news, he just remembers the overwhelming confusion and grief that quickly filled their home. My mom and dad came in and they just sat us all down and they knew that I would understand more than Ross and Caroline would. I mean, Ross was seven or eight at the time. Caroline was like four, so she didn't get it. So they told us in whatever way they could as far as that Danny wasn't coming home and he passed and I just shut down. I didn't say anything to anybody for for a long time. He had just tons of friends coming over and support, and so I'm sure that was hard on my mom. Like, I remember the only times I would come out of the room was to go to the bathroom or something, and my mom's room was right next to the bathroom, so I'd hear my mom crying frequently. Almost every time I'd come out, I'd hear her crying in the room. Danny was just 17 years old when he died. He had his whole life ahead of him, and sadly, it was cut short. Drew and his siblings had lost their protector, their big brother. Their parents had lost their strong and determined son, and ultimately the ability to reconcile their differences. The family was rocked, and it took an especially hard toll on Drew. I just didn't talk to anybody about anything, including my mom and dad. You know, it was really tough on me to lose him, and then all of a sudden become the you know the big brother who had to kind of take the role of him as a 12-year-old, which was too much to handle at the time, which is why I went kind of in hiding for a long time. So Danny had his own room. So when Danny passed, naturally I got that room. But I basically camped out in that room all day, every day. I I hardly came out to eat or, or shower or do anything for a really long time. His friends would come in. I would just act like I'm sleeping or something. You know, I didn't talk to anybody. I remember going to his funeral and not, I didn't even shed a tear at his funeral. And then going to school, rumors, people talking, you know. I don't recall when I stopped going to school, but it wasn't long after. So yeah, those were hard days, obviously. My parents were very down and depressed, like every day that would go by, things were very edgy around the house. Drew says he can't remember what all his parents learned in the days following Danny's death or what steps they took to uncover what happened to him. Understandably, as he was a teenager dealing with unimaginable grief. While he tries to assume the best, that like any parent, 
They were working hard to gather information and put the pieces together. Ultimately, he worries that they may have just accepted things and put their trust in the authorities. You know, my mom's a very yes person. Like, if the police say, we have this information, that's all we can give you, like, she just accepts it. She's a very intelligent person, but she just is very, just very passive. Like, she doesn't have any kind of mean bone in her body. So it's like if a police officer says, hey, I'm sorry, we don't have any information. Like, okay, well, just let me know if you guys find anything. Instead of, like, pushing way harder than that, you know, that just wasn't her nature. And then my dad, I don't, I don't know what he did. But, like, putting myself in their shoes, I feel like I would go nuts. Whatever it took, yelling, screaming, getting myself thrown in jail, talk to the police in a nice way, in a mean way, like, give me some information, like, you know, give me something. They just kind of accepted whatever they were told. As Drew has continued to put the pieces together, he says he's tried to learn more from his parents, thinking maybe they'd remember some important details all these years later, but he hasn't been able to get anywhere. After losing Danny, eventually his parents would divorce, and Drew says the loss affected each of his siblings a little differently. As the years passed, they each kind of took their own path in life. But whether it's a result of time and distance, or grief, or a combination, Drew regrettably tells me that Danny's death has always been a hard subject to broach with his family. It's been probably five plus years since I've even spoken to them, any of them, about it. You know, we'll say our few words on his anniversary of his birthday and his anniversary of his death, um, but that's about it. You know, not much we could say about it. My dad and I have had big fights. You know, anytime we have any kind of conversation of substance, he'll end up saying, you've always blamed me for Danny's death. Particularly, we had one blow-up fight in the kitchen in my house in Toledo. This is the first and only time I had ever really gotten emotional in front of him. And I had started, you know, crying and... And he had said that again, where he says, Drew, you've always blamed me for Danny's death. But I like, I was genuine with him when I said, Dad, like, you've said this many times, and like, I've told you every time that I've never told you that. I've never told him or said anything of that effect. So I just basically broke down and I started crying to him, and I just told him, like, heartfelt that I did not think that way and that he, knew, he never needs to, to say that again. So that was, I don't know, 10 years ago. And, um, he had not said it again up until recently. I was on the phone with him. I was We got arguing like we always do, and he said it again, and I just went off on him about it. And I had to remind him about that talk in Toledo. I said, well, that really stuck with me. That was a big moment to be able to say and do that. And he said he didn't even remember it. At this point, Drew has all but given up on talking about Danny's death with his family. While he may never learn what all they know or don't know about this case, it hasn't stopped Drew from seeking answers. He's instead resorted to other means of gathering information. Most everything he's learned over the years has come from Danny's closest friends, the group we discussed earlier, Steve, Adam, and Judd. They were always determined to learn the truth about what happened to their friend, Sadly, Adam passed away some years ago, and over time, they've lost touch with Judd. But Drew says that Steve remains diligent and has become quite a source of information. 
He was the one who told Drew that the group had taken LSD the night before Danny's disappearance. And even though Danny experienced a bad trip and eventually stormed away from his parents' home sometime during the morning of October 24th, it does not appear that drugs played any direct part in his death. According to a news article from the Mansfield News Journal from November of 98, the year Danny died, Huron County Prosecutor Russ Leffler said the coroner ruled out several causes of death involving foul play, stating, quote, there was no apparent blunt force trauma, no stabbing, and no shooting. Because this was the only article I could find, I can't say whether or not his actual cause or manner of death were ever reported to the public, but it's my understanding that while his manner of death remains unknown, his cause of death has been established through his autopsy report. And Drew adds that some of the reporting in Danny's case has raised some serious questions. His cause of death was asphyxiation, according to the autopsy report. The autopsy report ruled out is that it was not a suicide because he was not hung. Like, so if you have the rope hanging from a beam or whatever and you hang yourself, the way that the lacerations go up and around behind your ear and they determined that it was not that because of the way the marks were around his neck. It looked like it was from behind. It was not from hanging from an object. From my recollection, it was either he choked on vomit and was left alone too long and passed, or somebody strangled him with a rope of some sort or belt or something. I don't know if it was on the police report or the toxicology report, but he had rat poison that was not in his blood system that was apparently shoved down his throat. Basically, it was it made it look like it was a suicide. Whoever brought him out there must have tried to cover up their tracks in some way. He had ATV tire marks across his chest. They were able to show that that was after the fact as well. So after he had already passed, then he was run over. After learning that there was in fact significant information and evidence gathered in the investigation into Danny's death, Drew is now left wondering, if authorities knew all of this, why haven't they been able to resolve this? The way they've handled Danny's case has always bothered Drew. He's had a really hard time trusting his local police. Whenever that person called 911, I don't know if he got put to the sheriff's department. I don't know if he got put to the Willard Police Department. But all I know is that Rick Sexton was a part of the investigation right away. And it was not his case. It was not Willard's case. Just from my personal experience with Rick, he was one of the officers at like the basketball games at the school and whatnot. He had a very strange relationship with me after that. I caught him looking at me often. And it was just like he'd be watching the game or like looking at the crowd and then he would like pinpoint on me and he never said anything to me. But I just felt very like he wanted to say something to me, but never did. And as far as the police reports go, I've always been directed to the sheriffs and the sheriffs are also not very forthcoming. It's an open investigation. They can't say certain things. And that's just all I get from everybody. I actually went to the Willard Police Department just to kind of see if I can gain any information from them since I wasn't getting anything from the sheriff's department and I was not treated very well and basically asked to leave after 10 minutes. Said, we can't help you. We're not involved in this. 
So I don't know if Willard even has anything on the case at all. Even after all this time, no person of interest has ever been publicly named in Danny's death. Our team submitted FOIA requests for any documents available on Danny's case, but received the following response. If the case was unsolved and no criminal action was filed, the clerk's office would have no records on Danny Violet. Contacting our area law enforcement or county prosecutor's office may provide additional information. Heeding the advice, we additionally reached out to the Willard Police Department and the Huron County Sheriff's Office for comment on the case, but have not received any response. Drew laments that at this point he sees his brother's case stuck in limbo and that it's going to require someone doing their own digging or someone speaking up to crack this. It's his understanding that while Danny's body was found outside of Willard city limits, the Willard Police Department has taken responsibility for the case, which remains open, although Drew isn't really sure who's leading the investigation or if the case is even being investigated for that matter. And this has been the story since day one in Drew's eyes, but in the recent years, he's taken matters into his own hands, hoping to get to the bottom of this and put an end to the 20-plus years of suffering. He tells me he's more committed than ever to solving his brother's case. But without assistance from authorities, he's had to rely heavily on the rumor mill and is now trying to determine which information, if any, is fact. Let's see. One note that I have here was that Danny apparently had a torn shirt and did my mom and dad see it? Uh, let's see here. Uh, according to my best friend's half-brother, who I grew up with and knew really well. And he said that he saw Danny at a church party that was in a barn. I'm not sure what that's about. According to this, DNA was found in and around the crime scene. And we don't have any answers of what that was. It says here this, they're definitely hiding something and they don't know what they have to gain from it, but that's definitely knows something. Um... As we talk, he starts thumbing through his binder again and glancing over his scribbled notes. It's like the proverbial corkboard investigators use, and it's where he's been tracking down leads and jotting down anything that could help him piece together the clues about his brother's death. Well, I've got a lot of contacts uh, to reach out to, you know, old names that come to mind. And so if I hear the same name from four or five different people, then I can maybe focus on those names that it funnels down to it could break open the case a little bit. I've not known who to trust, so this is a nice, I guess, different route for me to be able to speak a little bit more openly. Something like this will either rile people up or get them talking more. I mean, it happened in 98. Technology was not there. It doesn't seem to be nearly what it is now, so I don't know if there's tests they can run on, on old samples and things like that, but I'd like to get the case closed. Drew was willing to open up to us about his brother's case because he believes that telling Danny's story in this way could be the thing that finally helps make a difference. No matter what comes of it all, Drew is advocating for his best friend and brother. Danny died far too young, and his family has been left without answers for far too long. No matter what the future holds, Drew says he hasn't given up hope. In closing, I asked him, what's been the hardest part of all this? What I miss is the potential of what his life would have been. You know, I could see him being married with kids for sure. 
and having you know more nieces and nephews i just don't know what his life would have turned out to be uh if anybody did know something about my brother's case i would hope that after this amount of time that's passed that they would have the decency i guess to come out and tell our family what they know whether it it would solve the case right away or if it would help us lead to solving the case to help us kind of have the closure that we're looking for. If you have any information about the death of Danny Violet, please call the Willard Police Department tip line at 419-933-6110. Or you can contact the Huron County Sheriff's Office at 419-668-6912. Thanks for listening. Culpable Case Review is a production of Resonate Originals and Tenderfoot TV in partnership with Odyssey, written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper. Executive producers are myself, Mark Mennery, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Our senior producer is John Street. Additional production from Jamie Albright and Taylor Floyd. Editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Dayton Cole, Pat Kicklighter, and Adam Townsell of the Resonate Recordings team. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at ResonateRecordings.com. Our theme song and original score is by Dirt Poor Robbins with additional scoring by Dayton Cole. Our cover art is by Drew Bardana. Sources for this episode include the Mansfield News Journal. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcast. Additional content can be found on our website, culpablepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Thanks again for listening. Till next time.